Welcome to episode number 52 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and Reformation Roundtable is a production of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. And what we are is a Reformed church that has recently planted here in Centralia, Washington. Now, we are thoroughly Trinitarian, we are biblically devoted, and we are historically Reformed. Now, we are a Reformed church, and to my knowledge, we're the first Reformed church Lewis County has ever had. Some of the distinctives that you'll find if you come worship with us is that we practice covenant renewal worship. We have exegetical preaching. We practice weekly communion. We sing the Psalms robustly, not exclusively, but robustly. And we have Christ-centered fellowship during the Lord's Day and throughout the week. And so if that sounds like something that you would like to be a part of, if you would like to come alongside us as we seek to disciple the nation that is Lewis County, we would love to have you join us on this upcoming Lord's Day. We meet right now at the Ford's Prairie Grange. This is in Centralia. The Ford's Prairie Grange, it's on Reynolds Avenue. If you want the exact address, head on over to lewiscounty.church. There you'll find all of the information and more that we will be discussing on the podcast. Now, this episode is the audio from our Lord's Day service that took place on Sunday, June 27th. 2021. It was a wonderful and very hot Lord's Day service. The Grange has no air conditioning, and we sweated it out uh, on a day where temperatures reached 108 degrees. We had a wonderful sermon preached by a man by the name of Les Doyle on Psalm 51. It's the Song of Penitence, or a Song of Penitence, and he did a fabulous job of impressing upon us both the gravity of sin— the holiness of God, and the grace that is infused for those who are found in Christ. You're not going to want to miss it. So on these podcasts, I include all of the exegetical and exhortation portions of our covenant renewal worship. So this includes the meditation, the call to worship, as well as the exhortation and our confession, of course, the sermon, and then our dis- our brief discussion on communion, and then the charge and the benediction at the end. So I hope you enjoy the sermon, and I hope that you come and you join us, that you join us in our desire to see the glories of Christ revealed to those who find themselves here in Lewis County. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Lamentations, chapter 3, 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait patiently, should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we know you are good. We are here this morning waiting for you and seeking you. Cause our hearts, our ears, and our minds to hear your salvation clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5. Hear the word of God. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Lift up your hearts. Pray with me. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
We are here because you have seen fit to call us here. This worship belongs to you, and you are the only one who deserves our loyalty and our praise. Thank you for calling us your saints. We are your people who are called by your name. We come because you've called, and only those lost to the insanity of sin would refuse to come. Thank you for your favor, which lasts a lifetime. Strip away from us the enormous obstacles and the remaining vestiges of unbelief, and may we embrace the joy that has come with the morning. That joy has a name, and it is in that name we pray. The name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Amen. On the front of your bulletin, you'll see uh, right under Lord's Day Worship, it says lectionary readings, and that changes from week to week, depending on when in the church calendar we are. Lectionary readings are basically the same page summer for the whole world. Everybody in the church, if you follow the church calendar, is reading the lectionary readings each week. And so in our lectionary reading this week, um, we read, uh, we, we come to a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Apostle Paul is encouraging the believers in Corinth to be generous in support of the church and in the relief of the saints. Uh, as an example, he tells them to look to the poor and destitute church of Macedonia. These Christians, these Macedonian Christians, have been given we're told, a severe test of affliction. So we're not told what the test of affliction was, um, but we are told what the response of those Macedonian Christians was. The, The response they had to their severe test of affliction was an abundance of joy. Okay, so get this, severe test of affliction equals an abundance of joy. Let's call that work number one of the Holy Spirit. Paul then goes on to say that these Christians were in extreme poverty. Now, he's talking to the Corinthians. He's saying that the Macedonian Christians were in extreme poverty, but they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They actually were giving beyond their already scanty means. In fact, we're told that these Christians, these Macedonian Christians, begged. They actually begged Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They believed that it was an honor to give of their poverty generously to those saints in need. All right, so extreme poverty equals overflowing in a wealth of generosity. Let's call that work number two of the Holy Spirit. Finally, Paul is careful to frame in this passage that the generosity that these Macedonian Christians was not virtue signaling. Virtue signaling or or trying to be noticed for doing something virtuous or good is nothing new. That's not just a Facebook thing. Jesus told us that Pharisees loved to be seen giving large gifts to the temple treasury. And they did that so that they could be seen by other people and get their reward here on earth. No, Paul says that in their generosity, these Macedonian Christians first gave themselves to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So last thing, giving yourself first to the Lord equals being able to help those around you. So this is work number three of the Holy Spirit. Let's review. The first one is the severe test of affliction and abundance of joy. The second is extreme poverty and an overflowing, overflowing in a wealth of generosity. And the third is giving yourself first to the Lord, which results in helping those in need around you. So are you, is anyone here 
facing a severe test of affliction. And the heat doesn't count. If you are, ask the Holy Spirit to give you an abundance of joy. Are you not currently experiencing a severe test of affliction? Again, ask the Holy Spirit to give you an abundance of joy. It's not the affliction that gives the joy. It's the Holy Spirit. Are you facing extreme poverty? Ask the Holy Spirit to make you overflow in a wealth of generosity. Or do you possess riches today that would boggle the mind of a first century king? If so, ask the Holy Spirit to make you overflow in a wealth of generosity. It's not the poverty that causes us to be generous. It's the Holy Spirit. And then finally, when you seek to help those around you, Are you first giving everything to the Lord and seeking his will to be accomplished through your work? This isn't United Way. We don't give generously so that we can grab that killer killer mission trip Instagram selfie. Seek first his kingdom and seek first his righteousness, and all the other things will be added to you as well. So this, of course, reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you are able, please kneel with me before the Lord. Scripture says, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, in our sin, we are bowed down and in the dust. We are filled with sorrow, and we confess to you, Lord, our bitterness when we receive a severe test of affliction. When we are given this gift instead of an abundance of joy, far too often we sink into a pit of despair and self-pity. Forgive us, Father, for this. You have blessed us, Lord, with immense riches, riches in technology, medicine, wealth, food, comfort, cleanliness and pleasures, and yet we are often stingy with our talents and bury them in the ground or waste them instead of using them to further your kingdom. Forgive us for this, Father, we ask. We confess to you our desire to obtain the approval of those around us. So often we don't seek or give ourselves first to you, but we seek for high-profile ways that we can appear to be generous so that we can obtain a quick reward here on earth. Forgive us, we ask, Father, for this sin. Father, we now confess our own individual sins to you now, and Selah. We ask all of these things in the good and strong name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Please rise with me for the assurance of pardon. Hear the following promise from Scripture. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks Thanks be to God. Good morning, Christ Covenant Church. I'm very humbled to be here and, and very privileged to be here as well, to have been privileged to be involved in the in the. Consideration and the the dream of this church, and then to see it see it come to fruition is just um, is not, 
it's almost uh, makes me speechless. We're in Psalm 51 this morning. Um, that's where the Lord had led me to consider. But I want to start with a verse in Romans 15, verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. So when we consider these, these words, everything that, that Joe has said, and, and in fact the, the, the songs that we have already sung this morning, they're there for us. There, there's no accident here. There's no coincidence. There's no, no fact that there was allusions and, and references to, to repentance already this morning. That's not an accident. We believe, everybody in this room believes, or at least most of us believe, that the Holy Spirit is here. That's absolutely vital. That's important. And that, that means something, in it, and it affects our spiritual posture and our countenance here on this Lord's Day. That certainly the song we just sang may not be a song that you hear on the radio, but the words are timeless, and they're words that, that we share with, with a whole tradition of believers and people in the church. I just find that absolutely amazing. As I was considering Psalm 51 a lot, one of the things that occurred to me that's always been there for all of us to think about is that if, if you are in conversation with someone and you are talking about God and you're really, really talking about God and his revelation to us in his word, I would, I would contend that what I learn about someone's attitude and their opinion, their understanding, their relationship, everything with them and God, what I'm going to begin to understand about them without it even being specifically said is how they view sin and vice versa as well. How you see sin is going to be, is going to be some kind of indicator, some kind of litmus for how you see God. And so as we consider Psalm 51 here, as we consider the king of Israel and his, his, his grieving and all that, I think we need to, I'm going to start by way of introduction in 2 Samuel. And I'm gonna, when we think about 2 Samuel 11, this episode with Bathsheba, we see David that he broke the 10th commandment, he coveted. And then the seventh, he committed adultery, and the sixth, murder, and, and, and others as well. While the Lord sat silent, observing. And here in 2 Samuel 12, now I'm going to be in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 14, and then we'll move into Psalm 51. We see here at last the Lord called David to account. For standing above the law. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. 
He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan, the prophet, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall be with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to see his house. Seeing the greatness of his guilt... David composed Psalm 51. In, in, in the psalmody, there are seven penitential psalms, 6, 25, 32, 38, 51, 130, and 143. This particular psalm, I think, for me, for me personally, okay, uh, stands out because of the, comp, the, the content of it and how, how I knew the, the story, the backstory of it. And this psalm, the composition of this psalm, is not, is not about David. Although he is certainly a big part of it, right? He is the author and he is the composer of it. But this psalm is about God. This psalm, this, this, excuse me, this psalm explores not only the, the depths of the guilt of David, but some of the farthest reaches of salvation Amen. as we consider it. I want to read Psalm 51, and uh, then we'll, we'll go through it. The introduction says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your, of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, O you will not despise. Do good design in your pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. We see right away when we just look look at the title, the introduction, before the psalm even starts, that it's to the choir master. Now that, that would indicate to us that not only is this a psalm for personal reflection and personal consideration, for us, for us to inventory and look at our sin and be real about it and be deep about it, and understand that it offends God, but this is also a song for Israel as well, that is to the choir master, and it's, it's for the nation to, to adapt and adopt and, and consider as well as a nation. Because we know, we, we read our Bibles, we know about Israel. We know, we know the level and the consistency of their unbelief as a chosen people of God. You know, when we see David here in this situation, this scenario, in what we're talking about this morning, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we see David the calculating, the conniving sinner, looking, looking to, to possess Bathsheba, already forsaking his duty as, as king. It's the season when kings are out leading their armies. Yet here he is on the roof of his palace or his castle, just lounging around in his bathrobe. At least that's how I see it. But he's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be functioning as prophet, priest, and king for the nation of Israel. Samuel anointed him by God to be the king. And David was up close and intimate and personal with everything that was going on in the life of Saul as king and as a person. So we see David in this capacity, and then, and then we enter Psalm 51, and we see, we see this man who is absolutely grieved and who is overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And between the David of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and between the David of Psalm 51 stands Nathan the prophet of God. The power of God's word delivered by Nathan is so striking and so apparent and so evident in this transformation within the king. To, to, go, to go from the, the, lowest, the lowest of lows to be standing that guilty distance from God 
And then for God, out of his mercy, to send Nathan the prophet. Think about it. Really to rescue him. Quite a few, a few years ago, I came across a quote from a man named Leonard Ravenhill. He's, an old, he's, a, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he was an old Pentecostal preacher. And Ravenhill said this, and I, and I, want, I want you to hear it. David had one of the most blessed experiences in the world, and the blessedness was that he was miserable about his sin. What a, what a, what a powerful statement, what a, what a poignant thing, and what a, what a truth and reality for all of us. Because I'm going to stand up here in the pulpit, and I'm going to let you know that I have sinned. No surprise but I've also, I have also been very cavalier about my sin because it's maybe not quite so bad. Or, or you know what, I can, I, can, I can push through this or get around it. What a blessing to, to, to be that connected to God and to feel it when you offend him. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. We see the king of Israel here appealing right off the bat, right out of the gate, to the mercy of God. He doesn't even mention his sin. We're not there yet. It's coming. Lord, have mercy on me. Don't we think about to the gospel? When we think about the, the penitent one who said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, he wouldn't even cast his eyes towards heaven. The Pharisee made sure everybody heard his prayer and knew of, knew of his prayer. I have a couple quotes in my holster here. One from Richard Sibbies, the, uh, the Puritan. said, gospel repentance is not a little hanging down of the head. It's a working of the heart until your sin becomes more odious to you than any punishment for it. David doesn't appeal to his own position as king of Israel in the line of Judah. This is, this is the language, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the language of one who has no claim to the favor that he begs. Uh, David is under no illusion here. I don't deserve your mercy, Lord, because otherwise it wouldn't be mercy, right? David's prayer recognizes he doesn't deserve forgiveness, but he humbly asks God to act what? In accordance with his nature. I know we hear that often at Christ's Covenant Church about the promises of God. And I'm going to tell you, that's what, that's what we need to do in every circumstance, no matter if it's a petition or whether it's a thanksgiving or whether it's in a repentance mode, that we need to appeal to the nature of God, to his nature. Remember in Exodus 34, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
That's our God, and he's immutable, and he's the same God yesterday and today and tomorrow. The same God that Moses appeals to, the same God that David appeals to, is the same God that Les appeals to, or Dennis, or Luke, or Joe, or whoever. It's the same God. He has not changed. He will not change. And he gives us grace in that we will change. David says, blot out my transgressions. Blot out this thing that's in the book, this indictment that is, that is registered for me, that is, that is in, in, on my account. Blot it out, Lord. Have mercy on me and blot out my transgression. People understand what David is saying here. The nation is singing this song when they need to sing it. We sing this song when we need to sing it. Only the gospel, listen, only the gospel of Jesus Christ, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can reveal at what cost the record of debt which stood against us could be blotted out. Think about it. This is, this is not some exercise in wordplay or anything like that. The cost for us, for us to confess our sins, the cost for God to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, the cost for us to be able to stand up and not be absolved by Joe, but rather join him in praising God for forgiving us, that there was a cost to that. And it was the most severe cost. It was a cost certainly we could not pay at all. We know that. Look at Colossians 2, verse 4, 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having stood against us with its legal demand, or excuse me, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph, triumph over him, or in him, rather. This is what David wanted and what we all desperately need. The books of our lives have been, writing, have been written with our sin. The books of our lives are an open, open book and an indictment on us as sinners. All of humanity, not just people who attend a church on Sunday, but all of humanity. And unless something is done, it's going to stand against us at the last day when it is read. But God can and will do something. Remember back to Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, he is gracious and merciful. He is steadfast. He, his forbearance, as, as in Romans 2 verse 4 says, his forbearance leads us to repentance. Leads us to it. When we put our complete faith and trust in Christ, truly, when we do that, we end up, we end up composing this psalm in us as well. That God restores us. We're no longer standing that guilty distance from him. 
Verses 2 through, two through 4 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Sin resembles filth. It pollutes us. It makes us loathsome creatures in the sight of God. That's what sin does. David realizes that it's not man who can bring any relief to him. It's not. Someone may cut you some slack on something or, or you feel like you're okay or you just move to another town or whatever. Against you, you only have I sinned, says David. David understands and he realizes that his sin was against the nation of Israel, against the army, against Bathsheba, against Uriah. But all that does, all this offense against these, these people, these human beings, all it does is it amplifies and it elevates his understanding that I have sinned against you and you alone, God. It, it just brings it all home for him. It makes me think again how, how many times I have just not been miserable enough about my sin. But when David says against you and you alone have I sinned, it pretty much, it doesn't dismiss our other relationships, but it, it, it heightens and focuses our relationship on God and with God. Verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You know, David here, he's, he's, he's acknowledging his moral impotency here. Conceived and born in sin at no time in his life has he been without sin. There is a whole, whole host of people on this planet that do not like to hear that. There are a host of Christians, professing Christians, who do not like to hear that. But the biblical doctrine of total depravity is real. And it's accurate. And it's truthful. And it's what God says. Not utter depravity. Not that we can be as bad as we can possibly be. But that every aspect of our being has been affected by sin. That's, that's where we start. I'm thinking, you know, I was, I was looking at that and, and, and meditating on it, and I, re, I thought I had to go find it. I couldn't remember the exact uh, address, but in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this in verse 8. He said, this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then in 18 through 20 of the same chapter, Jesus said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. This truth of total depravity. And David's not commenting. He's not making, uh, he's not saying anything about bearing children or the act of conceiving children or anything like that. He's talking, he's talking about this nature that's in us, that's in every human being. 
that we don't start off with some kind of, some kind of uh, neutral slate. That we, we come out of the womb. We don't need to teach children to be selfish. We don't need to teach them, we don't need to teach them to be angry. We don't need to teach them any of that. Somehow, and, and I know in my house, probably through some just abysmal uh, modeling from me, the kids, the kids pick this up, and they have it in them. It's, it's, it's part of our nature. And that's the, beauty of, that's the beauty of the power of the Word of God and the power of Christ in our lives. David's not trying, David doesn't say this about being conceived in sin. He's not saying that to justify anything he's doing. You know, Lord, you know, I, you, I made this way. You got to cut me a little break here. You got to cut me a little slack. You know, I got a lot of pressure from this guy and these people over here. They want me to split the baby over there. They want this, they want this, and they want all that. David isn't saying that. He's not asking God to cut him any slack. He's saying, Lord, I acknowledge my depravity. I acknowledge, I acknowledge who I am, and I acknowledge my need. That's so vital. Verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He says, clean me with hyssop. Obviously, David considers himself polluted and filthy. That sin has corrupted him. That sin has maimed him. That sin, sin has caused him, again, to stand that distance from God. The sacrifices that David makes allusion to, the Levitical sacrifices and all that, they're a means of grace. Hebrews 9, 19 through 22 says, For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. David understood this when he asked God to cleanse him with hyssop. He meant, cleanse me by the blood, forgive me, and regard me as cleansed on the basis of an innocent victim that gave its life. David is saying, give me the reality at which these sacrifices symbolize. And David desires with all his heart, he wants to be right with God so that he can, he can, can, can live. So that he can live again. There's no lip service going on here. This is real. We rest in the promises of God and in the comfort that those promises bring us. He promises to pardon our guilt and readmit us to his favor. I mean, we think David, David talks about his bones aching, his bones being crushed. Psalm 6 says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. 
Psalm 31, for my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. There's so many other. He even talks about his mattress dissolving because he's producing so many tears out of anguish and lamentation for his sin. And when you think about it, before Nathan got there, imagine the stress and the tension and the weight of all of this on the king. Because this isn't, Nathan didn't show up a couple days after his, his transgressions against the nation, against the army, against Uriah, against Bathsheba. He, this, wasn't a, this wasn't a week later. This baby is almost coming to full term. So the king has been languishing. The king has been in, incapable of performing his duties. And he knows. He's, in, he's not in a good place. He's in a terrible place. And he knows it. And thank God that he sent Nathan. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What does that tell us? When the, when the, when the king says, create in me a clean heart, O God, what is, that gonna, what is that telling us? As we read our Bibles, as we read, read the full counsel of God's word, everything in it, we know, right? We know. Well, Lord, you know, I'm going to work harder. I'm going I'm to really turn from this. I'm going to exercise this. I'm going to maybe make sure I don't look at another woman or I'm going to do all this. No. David's saying, Lord, you have to create this in me. Another thing other people don't want to hear, some people rather, they don't want to hear that faith is a gift from God. And they don't want to hear that it's twin brother repentance is a gift from God. Faith and repentance come from God. Why do you think David's appealing to his mercy? Why do you think David's saying, create in me what I need here, Lord? Because I can't do it. I cannot do it on my own, and I know I can't. And if I, if I say I do, I'm faking it. I'm not being honest. And I'm on a path that's leading into a, a real deep pit. There's plenty of scripture in there to talk about the gifts of faith and repentance, even obedience. And I'm not going to share them today. Verses 11 and 12 say, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord, what? Departed from Saul. David is well aware of this. David was aware that through Saul's disobedience, through his sin, he was removed from the kingship. And again, David says, restore this joy to me. If you don't have peace with God, if the joy of the Lord's is absent from you,
the odds are very good you have unconfessed sin in your life. I would submit that you should sit down and take inventory and take stock. I've had occasion over many years to, uh, well, I'm in recovery myself, but I've had occasion to work with addicts over many years, quite a few in fact, and I've had the the honor and the privilege and the blessing uh, to see some, some unbelieving addicts come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when that happens, certainly we understand that there is, there's, a, there's a new, that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and there's an incompatibility there with our previous issues, our previous sin. But one thing I've, I've asked almost in every situation when I'm talking to someone, and there's been a, a, quite a number of them, what is it now? What is it now for you versus what it was? When you, when you were in the pit, when, you, when the ground was coming up very fast to you, when you were exhausted and when you, when you had no trust in, your, in you, not even in, a, not even in yourself, what is it now that's, that's different? Because I wanted to hear what they had to say. I wanted to hear how they articulated this, this understanding now of belonging to Christ. And without, almost without exception, what they would tell me is, for the first time in my life, I know peace. What a, what a thing. Some, sometimes we, kinda, we equate peace with an air-conditioned house, with a fresh bottle of water. Being able to drink water out of any garden holes in America, for the most part, all of that. But boy, how how troubled are we? Often, to know peace is is just an amazing thing. To to possess the peace of God in our life, no matter what. I mean, my brother here was talking about these points he made, and that, that was a great sermon this morning, Joe. But what affliction does to us. And you know, we think, when, oftentimes we think back to Romans chapter 5 where it talks about what, what tribulation does to us and how it, how it ends up breeding hope within us. How Jesus said in John 16, 33, he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's our God and that's his consideration of us. It's just a beautiful thing. In 13, David talks about teaching transgressors his ways and sinners will return to you. David, David understands something here, and he's not trying to stike a deal. Lord, if you do this, then I promise I'll do that. How many, how many times have we done that, even inadvertently or even purposely maybe? How many times have we tried to say, Lord, if you just let this happen... I promise I'll, Lord, let me win the lottery and I promise I'll build a new church for Christ's Covenant Church. A big building and it'll be on the hill and everybody will see it. I mean, have we ever done that? I haven't. You guys know what I'm saying, right? David is just talking about, listen, I know, I know, I know I cannot get up and I cannot lead worship. I know I cannot get up and I cannot teach Israel. 
I know I cannot go out and I cannot be their king. Not while I'm here, not while this is happening to me. Lord, I need you. I need you to do something. You have to do it, God. The composition of this psalm is not from David. It's from the Holy Spirit of God in him. That's what David's saying. There's no bargaining going on here. We don't bargain with God. We may try it, and God is God often is is will allow us to do it. Or at least he won't smote us in this in the moment. But we know at some point the Holy Spirit is going to affect us and we're going to see it and we're going to understand it and we're going to we're going to go, Lord, forgive me for that. Verse 14 says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. The enormity of the sin of David continues to haunt him and continues to horrify him. And nowhere, notice this, nowhere in Psalm 51 is David attempting to escape any consequence from God. He's not asking to be cut any slack. He's saying, Lord, I, I, I lay myself prostrate in front of you and appeal to your mercy. I appeal to your nature. And I'm going to tell you what, that's what every one of us need to do probably more than once a day. Because we see David here, he's not going, Lord, I, I, I offended you and I've sinned and I pray you forgive me. David's, David's itemizing this and he's being specific about things. You know, and that's what we need to do. Now think about this. Somebody you know starts a rumor about you that's not true. Let's just say that. They start the rumor, and the rumor, the rumor takes flight and gains momentum. And the person who started the rumor starts to feel a little guilty, or, you know, boy, you know, uh, Les is looking pretty down over there. Man, they're really piling on him pretty hard. So, the, and I know, I know the guy did it. I know he started it because he's had, got some kind of beef with me. So, anyway, he, he walks over and he goes, Hey, uh, Les. I go, Yeah. If I've offended you, I'm sorry. You know, really, think about it, folks. How anemic is that? How disingenuousness, disingenuous is that? If I offended you? And how can you not itemize your sin? How can you not list it and be accurate about it when we know God is omniscient? He's omniscient. He, there's sins we've forgotten that he hasn't. But again, we hearken back to the power, the cost, the cost of Calvary, and we know what Christ has done. We count on him. <clears throat> Home stretch, folks. In verse 15, it says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David, David seems to think that his mouth must remain shut until he's right with God. Kind of uh, being a bit redundant right here in this portion. <coughs> Excuse me. When, when I got saved, when God saved me, 
when he saved me. I was saved. I knew I belonged to him. But in my life, there was an idol that I had worshipped for many, many, many years. And I don't know if I necessarily consciously thought about it, but the idol being alcohol in my life, I remember an evening when I was by myself and Kay was at work, and it was a Friday night, so it was like, you know, beer night or whatever. And I went and got my can of beer. I hadn't had a drink yet. And I bowed my head and I began to pray for my son, Michael. And I asked God, I said, Lord, show my son your power. Show him your love. Show him the depth of your mercy. And I remember opening my eyes and I saw this can in my hand and I looked at it. And there was no voice, there was no cloud, there was no flame, no burning bush or anything. But I looked at it and I got up and I walked into my kitchen and I poured this can out in my sink. And I said, you know... I'm never going to drink again. Well, that wasn't said with any arrogance. It wasn't said with any conceit. It wasn't said with any self-indulgence or anything. I just knew. I knew that the altar I always went to when I was hurting, when I was sad, when I was lonely, when I was, when I was in pain, when I was stressed out, when I, that, all of that, I knew that that was no longer, no longer possible. Because my God, my Savior, was not going to allow that in my life. But here's the other thing, too, that I found interesting, which, was, which ended up lending some confirmation to me, was that I knew that I wasn't supposed to say anything to anybody about this. And I, di- and I didn't. I, I knew that this, this was God. Take, God made a move and he took care of me. This happened 15 years ago. And, you know, it just it was a twinkling of an eye. Didn't need a program, didn't need a counselor, didn't need a sponsor or anything like that. The Holy Spirit of God had mercy on me and took care of me. A week out, Kay goes, uh, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm doing great. Well, there's a bunch of beer in the fridge that ain't been touched. I said, well, I said, well, I think I have a green light to tell her. No, the Lord, the Lord has delivered me of that need. The Lord has removed that from me because it's dishonored him and it's, and it's repulsive to him that I would serve another another after what he's done for me. What an amazing thing. And David's saying, you know, I'm going to keep my mouth shut until I'm right. Verse 16, David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He just, again, relied on the divine and rich mercy of God. You know, one of the, one of the big points in Psalm 51 is what's the, use of, what's the use of piling on sacrifices if your heart's not right? You know, I always thought, you know what, I know me, and I would, back, if, I, if I lived back in the day, if I was in Jerusalem, you know, I would... I would take my bull, the best one I had, the one that meant the most to me, I would take it in, I would offer it to the priest for atonement, 
the priests would receive it and they would sacrifice the bull. And then on the way out of the temple, going through the courtyard, I would trip over a beggar and I would get up and cuss the beggar out. My heart's not right. I'm, I'm satisfied that I did what I needed to do. I'm satisfied that I exercised something that was, like Joe said earlier, that signaled some virtue in me. God's after a, a contrite heart, a contrite heart and a broken spirit you will not despise, God tells us. It's a, it always has been. Ladies and gentlemen it's, and kids, it's always been a heart issue. It's never not been a heart issue. And we know that. And I'm going to close right now. I want to, I want to quote Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans. We, we like to hang around with the Puritans, I guess. But Anyway, Thomas, or Thomas Brooks said this, You know, one of Satan's devices to draw you into sin is to get you to consider the sins of the best men while hindering their virtues. He shows us the adultery of David, the pride of Hezekiah, the impatience of Job, the drunkenness of Noah, and the blasph- blasphemy of Peter. But he hides their tears their sighs, their groans, and he hides their repentance. That's the enemy. The enemy will show you all these things about these, these men and women who are in the Bible. And they're there for a reason, and they're there for us. And I've been tempted to go, well, you know, I didn't do real good today, but man, I didn't do what David did. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal anybody's wife. I didn't do this. You know, I didn't forsake my, whatever my duty was that day. You know what? Our sins always look worse on someone else, don't they? They always do. And the, the, the non-believing human on this planet is always going to look and seek to find someone who's worse than them so that they can feel better about themselves. You know, I may be a drug dealer, but I give everybody a fair count. We do that. We do that until Christ takes us, until Christ makes us his, until we belong to the king, until we understand that the cost that was paid for us, that we were bought with a price, that we are not our own. We, we don't, we, we, God owns us. We are his slaves we are his people. And even in Jeremiah in the Old Testament, God said, I will, I will circumcise their heart. So listen, repentance is good. And if you're truly repentant, it means God has had mercy on you. That God has touched you. That he has led you. That he has adopted you. That you belong to him and that you matter to him. That he is gentle and lowly and that he loves you. And that's the thing we often forget. Is that Christ loves us with a love that we, we often cannot understand. No matter how much you love your children, Christ loves you infinitely more than that. We're restricted. We're restricted. But in Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul said, I'm confident of this, that he who began that work in you will carry it on until the day of completion in Christ Jesus. Let me close with just a, just a brief prayer here. Lord, we beseech your mercy 
our utter and complete reliance upon your love and mercy manifested upon the cross is the only way to you. And we give you thanks and praise for the greatest cost paid by our Savior, your precious Son. Lord, you have redeemed your people. Let us worship you in every way. Lord, we sin much and therefore have to confess and repent much. And we acknowledge as great as our sin is, our Savior is even greater. Holy Spirit, let us truly feel the weight of our sin when we veer from the path of righteousness. As David, grant us misery when we sin. Lord, we desire to be fully immersed in you. Grant us a holy discontent when we, dis when we dabble in Christianity. Let us not be satisfied by anything short of total submission to you. God bless you. God called us into his presence this morning. We came here because we belong to him. He has given us a new, a new identity, and he placed the name of Jesus upon us through baptism. Because of this, we come when he calls. However, when coming into his presence, coming into his house, we must first metaphorically wipe our feet. This is why we always respond to his call to worship with a confession of sin. We confess in faith because we are promised that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Having been promised forgiveness, having been cleansed from our unrighteousness, we are changed and sanctified. We are consecrated, set apart. We're set apart by the reading and the preaching of the word, the singing of psalms, corporate prayers of thanksgiving and petition. All of these things make us more like Jesus. And now that we have been built up, now that we've been encouraged and convicted and strengthened and taught, now we feast. Communion is a feast, a symbolic feast to be sure, but a feast nonetheless. When you eat the bread, remember that you are feasting on the broken body of Christ, given to you to make peace with his Father, who is also our Father. When you drink the wine, remember that you are partaking of the cup of blessing that Christ gave to bring in the new covenant, a potent covenant, a potent covenant promise that his word will not return void. So for all of those who bear the name of Christ through baptism, come and welcome to Jesus. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you are giving us Jesus to strengthen us and make us more effective witnesses for your kingdom. Thank you for feeding us with your son who lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, and rose again in victory so that we might have peace with you and unity with our brothers and sisters who bear the name of Christ. Thank you. Amen. The charge is this. Go out into the world filled with the hope and assurance that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Take this hope and assurance and put it to work, bringing the gospel to a world desperate for the same deliverance. Receive the benediction from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Son, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.